Hi, this is Jim from Safety Wars. Before we start the program, I want to make sure everyone understands that we often talk about OSHA and EPA citations, along with some other regulatory actions from other agencies, legal cases, and criminal activity. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Proposed fines are exactly that, and they are often litigated, reduced, or vacated. We use available public records, news accounts, and press releases. We cannot warranty or guarantee the details of any of the stories we share, since we are not directly involved with these stories, at least not most of the time. Enjoy the show. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. We're going to start out with financial news because I never get to that right uh, up front here. Okay. So we had Dow Jones Industrial Average. Dow Jones Industrial fell slightly today to 13,394.25. S&P 500 fell slightly to 39.71. NASDAQ fell slightly to 11,716.08. Russell 2000 fell again uh, slightly 17.52. U.S. Treasury notes 10-year are at 3.571%. Uh, Bitcoin is trading at 27,288.07. Crude oil at 73. 72 per barrel, that's up. So everything is down except for crude oil. Let's head on over to precious metals. Gold at 19.82, it's up slightly. Uh, silver up slightly, uh, 23.63. Platinum up slightly, 9.88. Uh, palladium up slightly to 14.61 per ounce. And then, yes, and that is a Troy ounce, not your regular ounce. So uh, here we have uh, from the Wall Street Journal. We haven't really talked about the war all that much, but uh, we will now. So right now, a lot of stuff is going on on both sides of this, the Russian side and Ukraine side. So right now, uh, the headline in uh, Russia and uh, Wall Street Journal this morning was Russia's economy is starting to come undone. Investment is down, labor is scarce, budget is squeezed, and uh, there's going to be a money supply issue uh, in the up and coming months, uh, probably in the next year. The, uh, this is from Moscow. The opening months of Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year drove an increase in oil and natural gas prices that brought a windfall for Mask Moscow. Those days are over. As the war continues into its second year and Western sanctions bite harder, Russia's government revenue is being squeezed and its economy has shifted to a lower growth trajectory, likely for the long term. The country is biggest exports. Gas and oil have lost major customers. Government finances are strained going on down. So they're in a regression with the uh, war over here. Uh, I don't know. Uh, when their uh, back is to the wall, what are they going to do? Let's head on over to some OSHA news here. So uh, we get this off of the OSHA news releases here. And again, I, I, you know, I always say this. I, I'm looking at these for the first time. All right, so you're getting your my unbridled response to this. 
Deadly Gamble, North Dakota contractors, supervised workers in unprotected trenches, failed three inspections in 32 days, ignored warnings, and faces a $505,000 fine. Proposed. Twice in, this is from Mandan, North Dakota. Twice in 2022, the owner of a Mandan excavation company sat behind the controls of an excavator, supervised employees below as they installed municipal water lines and trenches as deep as 10 feet without protection against deadly collapses. Federal workplace safety inspectors found in 2022 trench collapses, right? Blah, blah, blah. For the seventh time in five years, inspectors with OSHA found a certain company exposing employees to trench hazards. After opening three inspections within 32 days in Bismarck last September and October, uh, OSHA cited the company for three willful and four repeat violations and one serious violation. Proposed penalties are $505,000 and some change. So... What were they? All right. Citation one to item one. Type of violation serious. No training. Real simple for the employees. Right. Uh, employer did not instruct each employee in the recognition and avoidance of unsafe conditions and the regulation applicable to his work environment. Again, this is a JHA job hazard analysis, job safety analysis whatever we're talking about, whatever it is, right? April 5th, 2023. So the workers had accumulated water, no means of egress, overhead objects and material, no protective system in type C soil with vertical walls. So type C soil is supposed to be uh, uh, sloped or benched at a, uh, for every right, rise over run. So, for one foot rise for every one and a half foot run. All right. This is what it is on that. Penalty $12,031. Type of violation willful serious. Each employee in an excavation is not being protected from cave ins by an adequate protective system. So this is under the excavation standard. So this was a willful one. Okay. And what was the price on that? $120,000 and change. Citation three, item one, a repeat violation. Serious. There's $24,000 fine with this. Uh, the, the, no adequate protections against water in the excavation. Citation three, item two, another repeat serious, right? Employees are not protected from excavator or other materials or equipment that pose a hazard by falling or rolling into excavations. So normally a spoils pile, and this is one of the, the things in the uh, regulation, spoils pile is supposed to be two foot away from the excavation edge. But the cave-in and the fissures that often appear uh, for a cave-in go up to two-thirds the depth of the uh, uh, uh Trench. So if you have a 10-foot trench, let's say, the cleave in the soil or the crack in the soil is going to could be as far back as six foot. So I don't go for this two-foot thing. I make people go back a lot further on that when I'm uh, acting as a confident person. Uh, fine, 24,063. So for a total proposed penalty of $180,476. Appleton Roofing Contractor said it for repeatedly failing to protect. 
workers to deadly fall hazards. Federal workplace investigators, this is from Appleton, Wisconsin. Federal workplace safety inspectors have found that a company, one of Fox Valley's largest roofing general contractors, allowed a roofing subcontractor exposed workers to intentionally deadly falls at a work site. Just two months after the general contractor discussed the importance of safe work practice with the USDOL. OSHA observed at least nine workers employed by a company in October 2022 to fall hazards. And uh, what do we have here? OSHA saw there were multiple, this looks like a multi-employee, a multi-employer situation where multiple contractors were cited here. All right. Uh, uh, Inspectors found that the GC uh, failed to conduct a comprehensive site audit and to make sure its subcontractors employees use required fall protection. Uh, it was $140,000 in proposed penalties and uh, one for one willful violation in federal fall protection requirements. Let's see what this is. So this is the GC got uh, uh, cited in this case. And the other... Uh, employee and the other uh, contractor one of their subs citation one item one a type of violation willful serious uh 192620 b2 accident prevention responsibilities such programs shall provide for frequent and regular inspections of job sites materials and equipment to be made by competent persons designated by the employees on or about October 18, 2022, an establishment located in Wisconsin, Wisconsin, I can't speak tonight, an employee of a certain company was present at an active jobs active job site and observed subcontractors being exposed to fall hazards of over 9 to 10 feet, 10, 9 feet, 10 inches, and failed to take prompt corrective measures. And they were previously cited for this uh, violation. Uh, in September 28, 2022. So, uh, so type of violation, uh, willful is $140,000, almost 141,000 type of violation. Citation one item one B type of violation, willful, serious. A residential construction, and this is 192651B13, each employee engaged in residential construction and acti- activities six feet or more above lower levels shall be protected by guardrail systems, safety net systems, personal fall rest systems, unless another provision uh, in paragraph B, right? So, uh, again, got to have fall protection. That was part of the first citation, no uh, fine on there. So proposed penalties $140,633 to the general contractor. Deadly defiance. So call of framing contractors' refusal to comply with safety standards continues despite a 2020 incident, 35 violations since 2019. Oh, this is a good one. With dozens of past violations, a construction company uh, now faces $464,000 in Federal workplace safety inspectors have found that an Ocala framing contractor's history of defying required safety standards continues with their employees' safety and puts their safety and lives at risk. 
there were 11 inspections since 2019 at this company, and the most recent one identified four willful, eight repeat, and 19 series, and four other than series violations. Many of, the, many of them related to fall protection. Ocean inspectors uh, observed uh, employees without fall safety gear while working atop a 15-foot-high residential roof in Tampa. This is out of Tampa, Florida, in September. By law, right six feet or above in construction. So let's see what this is. I don't think I'm going to read all through all of them because I tell you what. There's a lot of stuff here. But it looks like the typical stuff, right? Citation one was willful. No PPE. Iron face protection. So they're using nail guns, hammers, and circular saws without uh, PPE. So that was under the uh, 1926-102. Second one, and uh, what was that? No PPE, $103,000. So do you think that, uh, no, for really for... Uh, some, how much pair of safety glasses cost? Anywhere from two to 10, a basic pair. If you want a nice one with a gasketed or self-sealing uh, thing, uh, gasket on it, maybe you'll pay 20 bucks for it. Those are the ones I normally recommend. I put them to every one of my plans. Why? Because it reduces eye injuries by about 85% than just regular safety glasses, by the way. Citation item two, uh, serious fall protection, $120,000. Again, all these are proposed. Uh, citation item three, again, fall protection, residential construction, $120,000. Citation two, type of violation repeat, again, no training program for uh, each employee. So they were cited on this previously. And they still didn't fix it. Again, if you want training, give us a call. 845-269-5772 or jim at safetywords.com. Total proposed penalties, $464,079. And we're going to take a break right now so I can compose myself here. I cannot speak tonight. In the professional safety community, communication and planning are just a few keys to your program's success. The question many practitioners have is, where do I start? Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated R Safety Show, has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozell with Safety Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support. Osha Recordables. 
catastrophic losses, environmental disasters. You want answers? So do I. This is Jim Polzel with Safety Wars. That's my daddy. I just love that. That's my daddy. All right. So where are we here? We're at 22 minutes after the hour. Some news from Canada. Workplace fatality results in a $135,000 fine for Thunder Bay Contracting Company. So uh, never really looked at. This is from uh, news.ontario.ca. So, right, Canada, CA, right, .ca. So, uh, while replacing the left hydraulic lift cylinder of the arm of a front-end loader, a worker was fatally injured when the loader arm dropped after the hydraulic cap placed on the hydraulic lines was... So, this is like a typical lockout-tagout situation where where you're de-energizing something, essentially. And how is this... uh, And you have to prevent the... uh, a release of hazardous energy. In this case, the potential energy of the loader arm dropping, right? That you need to, if there's a pin in there, depending on the configuration, you put a pin in there or you put some type of a dunnage in there or something to prevent it from coming down, number one. Number two is that you avoid being in a pinch point or in the line of fire in this situation. So uh, the general contractor failed as an employer to ensure measures and procedures prescribed in Canada's regulations. So what's the penalty here? Following guilty plea in the Ontario Court of Justice in Thunder Bay, the company was fined $135,000. The court also imposed a 25% victim fine surcharge as required by by the provincial Offenses Act. The surcharge is credited to a special provincial government fund to assist victims of a crime. Wow. So they had uh, a lack of procedure and an inability to prop to use a proper manufacturer's support to hold up the arm of the front end loader while repairs and maintenance was being performed, creating a hazard. So that's you know basically it. You need to have some type of dunnage in there or something to hold this stuff up. U.S. Uh, EPA. EPA and Department of Energy honor 2023 Energy Star Partners of the Year Award winners. So here are a few award winners here. The U.S. EPA and the DOE are announcing the winners of the Energy Star Awards. We're not going to name all 220 organizations. Let's pick a couple here, though. We have Appalachian Power Company, an electric utility Help customers save more than 14 million kilowatt hours through its efficient products program, which provided incentives on a wide array of Energy Star certified products. It resulted in the sale of more than 3,000 Energy Star certified appliances and 92,000 weather stripping or insulation products. Here we have one going out to Co Industries. I used to always pronounce it Koch, but it's actually Co. C O C H. I'm sorry. K-O-C-H, Industries. A company engaged in diverse industries earned Energy Star certification for top energy performance at four nitrogenous, nitrogenous, okay, nitrogenous, meaning like nitrogen, uh, fertilizer plants, one oil refinery, and two pulp and paper mills. 
Here we have park hotels and resorts, a lodging real estate investment trust achieved significant energy efficiency improvements over the past year by incorporating Energy Star benchmarking and performance metrics and earned Energy Star certification for five hotels representing more than 4.5 million square feet of space. So congratulations to everybody. There. EPA and Health and Human Services, that's HHS, encourage states to utilize federal resources for lead detection, mitigation, and early care and education settings. So uh, the U.S. EPA and HHS issued a joint letter to governors to encourage state and local governments to use federal funding to take actions to reduce and remove lead in drinking water and early care and education settings like elementary schools and daycare facilities. The science is clear. There is no safe level of lead exposure to lead, especially for our children. Now, if memory serves me right, the symptoms of lead exposure do not show up until about 70 micrograms per deciliter. The OSHA uh, uh, level for lead, uh, for lead poisoning is 40 micrograms per deciliter. So... Symptoms don't show up till 70. So you're already well into lead. Uh, no, then you can look up what the uh, symptoms are. There are a whole list of symptoms. It's like two pages long. But they have cognitive impact on children. So from what I've read, for every 10 micrograms of lead in the blood per deciliter, you're reducing the intelligence of children between one and three IQ points. So if your child has like 70 or has like a 70, uh, you're reducing the potential, your, your IQ points by like 21 points, which will put you into uh, in the 70s, right? 79 or 80. That's uh, not good to say the least. So lead is a, a really important, uh, really uh, important thing to look at here with this and there's all different kinds of laws involved with it. And I'm going to recommend a book, uh, to everybody here on lead poisoning. It's actually like the, all right. And this is, uh, you can get this used, uh, really. I picked one up at one point. It was selling for like $20,000 a copy right now. It's going, uh, on Amazon for a lot, uh, cheaper than this and that poison in the pot, the legacy of lead, Right by Dr. Richard Wadeen. It's a little bit of an older book, but it gives you the whole history of lead. Uh, it's really a you know uh, not that hard of a uh, read. Now, what's uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, that's when I became familiar with this uh, uh, way back in the day. That's when I became familiar with this book, uh, published in 1984. So. Uh, and he was also, the author was from New Jersey. So, uh, really good book. Okay. So, I came upon a new, uh, no, and it's an industry, uh, it's an industry uh, publication. Cowboys State Daily out of Wyoming. And uh, they had uh, referenced the book, I'm sorry, not a book, a government uh, report from a, I don't want to call them obscure, but 
because I've heard of them already, but it's me and, you know, I read. So it's a report was issued called the annual our annual energy outlook 2023 that explores long-term energy trends in the United States. It's published by the U S energy information administration and right. It's allegedly nonpartisan, but we know all know how that, how that works. Now I'm going to read parts of the executive summary here because I tell you what, this is a little bit at odds with what we've been hearing, and we've been talking about global climate change and other energy uh, issues in the last uh, week or so. I right, still have one more interview. I haven't had a chance to edit on that. Uh, no, I was at the International Panel on Climate Change uh, in February. Our annual energy outlook 2023 explores long-term energy trends in the United States. That's a report that came out since last year's AEO much has changed, and the most notably, the passage of the Infl- Inflation Reduction Act, which altered the policy landscape we use to develop our projections. So here we go. The certain projections they came out with. We project that U.S. energy-related CO2 emissions drop 25 to 38% below the 2005 level by 2030. For reference, right, uh, the United States nationally determined contributions submitted as part of the Paris Agreement calls for a target of 50 to 52%. So we're not going to make that goal. All right. We consider energy-related CO2 emissions, which does not cover the full uh, NDC scope. That right. Total uh, energy-related CO2 emissions in 2050 uh, will decline by 17% in this year's reference case compared to last year. Okay, great. Okay. Overall, our lower projected U.S. energy-related CO2 emissions is driven by increased electrification, equipment efficiency, and renewable technologies for electricity generation. However, emissions reductions are limited by long-term growth in U.S. transportation and industrial activity. As a result, these projected emissions reductions are most sensitive to our assumptions regarding economic growth, the cost of zero-carbon generation technology. Okay, we're going to skip right to the last paragraph because this is what the important one. Despite no significant change in domestic petroleum and other liquids consumptions through 2040 and across most, uh, most AEO 2023 cases, we expect U.S. production to remain historically high as exports of finished products grow in response to growing international demand. Despite the shift toward renewable sources and batteries and electric generation, domestic natural gas consumption remains relatively stable, ending recent growth in most cases. Natural gas production, however, in some cases continues to grow. So what's the big thing here? Uh, Give it a, uh, a little, right? So we're going to be a net exporter of petroleum products and natural gas through 2050. All right. So this seems a little bit at odds with the Biden administration and a lot of the things that they've said. But basically, we're, oil is here to stay for at least my working lifetime. By 2040, I'm going to be 70 years old. That's when I'm supposed to retire. So uh, my opinion is that so, uh, fossil fuels are not going away, period. No, uh, but again, these are project, pardon me, projections that are meant to be, uh, you know, revised eventually. Oil is here to stay. 
So this is in uh, out of New York here. All right, construction worker killed in fall at J.P. Morgan Chase HQ site on Park Avenue. A construction worker was killed last week in a fall at the site of J.P. Morgan Chase in progress headquarters in Midtown East. The unidentified employee was working on the 12th floor, right? And the Department of Buildings said the worker lost balance and, <coughs> me, and plummeted. Uh, through a whole 20 feet. The worker who was doing carpentry work is employed by a certified interior was pronounced dead at the scene. So uh, that was basically it, you know, uh, with that. Again, falls is a focused thing with falls. I'm surprised this still happens in New York. Now, being it being New York, what do you have to worry about? Carlos's law, number one, where there could be a criminal conviction of the company resulting in 300,000 to $1 million fines. And uh, now for a, a, no, depending on the level, misdemeanor or felony conviction. Now we also have what is called the scaffold law in New York. And I would assume that they are being going to be cited under the scaffold law, right? With that. So we're talking a lot of money. And on top of that, you have a dead worker. All right. It's not all about money. It's about protecting those workers out there. This is out of the Washington Post. Lawmakers are again pushing for a no-fly list for violent passengers. A new bill introduced this week seeks to ban unruly passengers from flying. Seeking to keep violent passengers grounded, a trio of lawmakers will again introduce legislation that would create a no-fly list for people who act up in the air. Under the measure, people who were fined for a convicted or convicted of serious physical violence and abuse while traveling by air would not be allowed to fly on commercial planes. TSA would be charged, would be charged with creating and managing the banned flyers list. Right? So... Again, uh, I don't know. You have a right to travel in this country. I don't know uh, if this is even going to be... uh, A lot of these are from mask mandates and things where people were unruly. I don't know. Well, I don't even know what to think about this at this point. All right, so I'm going to... We have all this... uh, in the news lately about water pollution and everything, I wanted to replay a podcast from last September on water uh, and uh, disaster preparation. So uh, here is the podcast. This show is brought to you by Safety FM. Warning, the following broadcast contains adult language, adult content, frank safety discussions, and stories that might sound unbelievable. But believe me, every one of those stories is true. We didn't start the safety war, but we are going to fight to win it. For our families, for our communities, for our workplaces, and for our lives. Just when I thought I would not have anything to discuss about water with disaster preparation, all this stuff hits this week about Mississippi. We really haven't heard 
too much about Mississippi and the water quality. About 150,000 residents without a reliable without a reliable water supply, where they have low water pressure and then contaminated water, and it's a big mess over there. You could Google it. And the other one is in my home state of New York again, with arsenic in a New York City apartment building. So we have, for review, we have four different scenarios we have to deal with when preparing for a disaster. This is how I describe them. I haven't seen this described any other way. You have your immediate disaster, category one, from zero to 24 hours, category two, from 24 to 72 or 96 hours. Then you have category three, which would be uh, from 96 hours after about a month. And then you have category four, 30 days out and more. So the government says you should have enough water for like three days, four days. That's that category two situation as I describe it. The problem with Mississippi is that it's been going on since the beginning of the summer with all the situations. They had floods, they had all different types of situations. And now how do you prepare for that? It's the middle of the summer. If anyone's been in Mississippi in the summer, it's hot. It's real hot. So now that one gallon of water that, well, let's back up a little bit. According to the Mayo Clinic, the average man needs about one gallon of water per day. Average woman, a little bit less than that. So we'll just round it up to one gallon per person per day. And that's if you have a sedentary situation. That's not if you're not working. That's if you don't have any other major health problems, which may preclude you from drinking water. Uh, for example, my father who recently passed away could not drink any more than something like 40 ounces of fluid a day. And that included uh, from his food because he was on dialysis. I don't know. You got to check with your medical provider on that. And uh, or if you're going to be working harder, it's going to be more or less, what have you. You got to prepare for it. So now let's do some back of the envelope calculations here. That means in a 30 day period, you would have to have 30 gallons of water. That is only for drinking. That's not for flushing the toilets, bathing, uh, washing dishes, anything like that. So you're probably gonna need a lot more than that. That requires a lot more preparation. So what do people I know uh, do? They have a supply of paper products, paper plates, uh, plastic knives and forks, things of that nature, or they don't have to necessarily clean or wash dishes. That saves some water, but how much of this stuff are you really going to have? Something to consider. Your source of water. Is your source of water, for let's say sanitary purposes, a swimming pool? Or maybe at the impending disaster, you were thinking ahead of time and you went and collected water. So, for example, if you had 55-gallon drums um, in, your in your facility, clean ones for drinking or anything like that appropriate for carrying water, how long is it going to take you to fill that up? Let's say you have a family of four living in a home. One gallon of water per person per day, that's four gallons. 30 days, that's uh, 120 gallons just for drinking. Now, that's almost three, right, uh, no, 55-gallon uh, drums pretty standard, right? So three of them, that comes out to what? 165 gallons. Now you're 
approaching here where you're over two of those drums. Where are you going to keep it? Where are you going to store it? If you're living in an arid area, you may not ha be able to do that because of water uh, restrictions that, you know, you may be on well water that might preclude you from gathering that much water in a short amount of time, right? Uh, so again, put it out for a month, that's 120 gallons. Let's say you're living, in, no, so I'm living in a house. Yeah, do I have room for 120 gallons of water? Yeah, probably. Uh, what does this come down to? Uh, well, a case of water is just under five gallons of water. So now you're dealing with, no, five gallons of water, uh, 120 gallons. That's 120 divided by five. That's a boatload of cases of water. Or if you do the math, 24 cases of water for a month. Where are you going to keep that? If you're in an apartment, you have room for 24 cases? How are you gonna get it up there on short notice? That's something else you have to consider. Are you going to have storage of water on site? Okay, let's say you have an impending disaster. Uh, you have pretty good water flow, right? 80 or 90 PSI in the, uh, the lines. Now uh, you're able to get approximately one gallon per minute. So uh, you're gonna need 125 gallons. That's 125 minutes just over two hours filling up water for one month all right well that may not be uh, uh feasible in the professional safety community communication and planning are just a few keys to your program success the question many practitioners have is where do i start Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated R Safety Show, has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozell with Safety Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support. Do you have now let's talk about cost let's say you already have contaminated water it's after the fact like a lot of these residents in mississippi now you have another line item in your family budget you're buying water and i can guarantee you there are people gouging for bottled water down there in mississippi at least one person is out there gouging uh, for water and that's for, just for drinking now for sanitation what do you do all of this stuff has to be worked out ahead of time. How much water? Where are you going to store it? Now let's, uh, are you going to ration it? Now, here's the other thing. There's a lot of advertisements out there for water treatment systems. And I, no, full disclosure here, I used to sell water treatment systems for residential uh, homes. No company will give you a guarantee of what the output is of those filters. Even the best ones out there, because they can't 
know what you're putting through those filters. So when someone says, hey, use this filter and everything is filtered out, that's not necessarily true. One, that filter may be overloaded at a certain point and may let contaminants through. Uh, the second thing to consider is, is that filter rated for the contaminants that you're dealing with in that water? Third thing is, what are you putting into it? Because what you're putting into it may uh, impact what you're getting at on the other end. Are you, are you uh, going to go and boil water, for example? They always say boil water on a boil water alert. And it always seems to be, you know, maybe it's just coincidence that these boil water alerts happen when there is work being done on uh, the water mains. Right? It happened a lot to us last year. We were on boil water alerts. Don't use it for cooking. Don't use it for bathing. Blah, 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 blah. All that goes into that. What are the proper procedures? How long are you going to boil it? How are you going to boil it? Guess what? In the major disaster, you may not have access to electric. You may not have access to uh, gas if you're working off of gas, right? Like propane or natural gas for your house. How are you going to boil that? This is going to be with wood. And we all, always get, I mentioned this a couple weeks back, security. Someone knows you have clean water. Someone knows that you have a way to purify water. There's a good chance that you now become a target and you made your situation worse. Who are you going to share that information with? What kind of security are you going to have for around that? Are your neighbors trustworthy? I, I, no, I always favor keeping your mouth shut as to what your disaster preparations are and give it to whoever is appropriate to give it to. Friends, family, close friends, close family, what have you. These are the kinds of decisions that a lot of families had to go through 10 years ago with Superstorm Sandy here in the New York, New Jersey area. Where we are not used to dealing with major disasters. Some areas of the country uh, along the Gulf Coast... Uh, the southeastern United States, they have hurricanes. They deal with a lot of this stuff all the time. Up here in the northeast, if we have a snowstorm or something like that, okay, we know how to deal with that pretty well. But a major disaster like Superstorm Sandy, now you have the issue with this, uh, no, some of my story here. We were living in a house in Chestnut Ridge, and the uh, water treatment facility for Rockland County was uh, flooded. So we couldn't drink the water. Uh, using it for bathing was questionable, but using it to flush the toilets, we were able to manage that. Uh, if we didn't, if we were unable to flush the toilets, that would have been a ma that would have been a major issue. Believe me. Uh, now, uh, what do we do? We can't drink the water. We had plenty of bottled water. I said, and I was uh, newlywed. I said, honey. Let's go and get every container that we have that can hold water, including the garbage cans, and let's fill them up with water. She said, why? I said, well, in case we lose water, and now we have potable water to drink. I wouldn't drink it out of the garbage can, but pots, pans, glasses, pitchers, bowls, uh, anything that can hold potable water, meaning drinkable water, we have. That way, if we could at least go and boil that, purify it somehow, we, have, we increase our chances of not having a problem. What's uh, some other stuff to think about? Let's say that you're a first or second responder. First responder, we know EMTs, firefighters, uh, emergency services, police, that sort of thing, even um, the military. 
they have a, a lot of this stuff worked out with water supplies. They know about how long there, it takes for you to get uh, where you're going to need water, things of that nature. Your second responder companies, which are the ones I normally deal with, those are your cleanup contractors, your uh, uh, maybe they're called in to help the first responders on something. A lot of those companies are not necessarily prepared for a water issue. So what's the rule of thumb? I always tell the responders, for the first day of an emergency, always have water with you. You get the phone call, hey, I need you X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. Okay, always have your water on hand for you for one day, which I would always say about two gallons of water. And if I'm going to choose between a large bottle of water a large container of water for drinking water, I'm usually going to favor a smaller bottle of water. This way, if something happens, something gets contaminated, now you only have a little bit of contaminated water, not a big container of contaminated water. And you have basically the first four hours or five hours of a major emergency, or even a minor one, an oil spill, things of that nature, I would consider you being 100% responsible for yourself as far as water, food, uh, things of that nature. Once you start, if you're a manager, once you start getting beyond the three and four hour mark, you need to dec decide, and hopefully you have it planned out ahead of time, how are we going to get these people food, water, things of that nature? Now you may say, well, hey, they're going home at night, they're responsible for lunch, brown bag it. That's all fair and good. But in a major disaster, you may not be able to do that. So now you have to figure out how you're actually going to feed these people. What's the bottom line for most of these disaster preparation episodes? Kind of plan things out. Assess, analyze, act. To get a lot more education than what I'm giving you here. There's different methods of purifying water. There's different sources of water, things of that nature. And like I said, the government uh, requires to, or is asking really, two or three days, maybe four days worth of water in your house. I think that's doable for most people. Anything longer than that, you're going to run into a situation. And you got, may have to get a little bit creative. We're going to talk about food in our next program. For Safety Wars, this is Jim Pozel. Is your safety training old, stale, and hackneyed? Is your safety trainer still preaching a warped version of behavior-based safety? How about safety training that actually addresses your hazards in your workplaces and is not standardized baloney from 25 years ago? Contact the Safety Wars team at safetywars.com or call Jim Pozel at 845-269-5772. Remember, if you're receiving this message, you are the solution to unsafe workplaces. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. <laughs>